Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we'll have guests associated with ETV's series, South Carolinians in World War II. John Rainey is executive producer of the series, and Jeff Wilkinson is the series producer. But more importantly, we'll have two members of what Tom Brocco called the greatest generation, Chris Carowin of Columbia and Jack Keith of Spartanburg, who will tell their stories and their experiences in World War II. We'll have that conversation, but first, your NPR news break. With me in the studio today are four gentlemen who are part of the third segment of South Carolinians in World War II, subtitled Path to Victory. We've got John Rainey, who is co-founder of the ETV Endowment and the executive producer of the series, Jeff Wilkinson, who is the series producer and a reporter for the state newspaper, and we've got two World War II veterans, uh, Chris Carowin of Columbia, who served in the 106 Division that took the brunt of the attack at the Battle of the Bulge, and Dr. Jack Keith of Spartanburg, who was with Patton's Third Army. So first of all, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. John, so, why, why don't you talk about how this series came about? And it's really become a passion with you, I know. I'm a passionate guy. Well, yes, you, yes, you are about a lot of things. Lot but let's talk things. about particularly okay. uh, this series. Well, this got started in uh, 1999 when I read The Greatest Generation, Tom Brokaw's book. And Elaine Freeman and I were at a Brook Green meeting. And after the meeting, I called Elaine aside and I said, let's go out and sit in the Oak Alley, which is a perfect place for, for the muses to gather around you. And um, I said, Elaine, we need to start preserving uh, the stories of those men and women who really saved the world from descending into another dark age. And we need to get on it now. Well... Um, we started it, and it was starting to be called The Vanishing Generation. The problem is um, I got into a dust-up with uh, Governor Hodges and uh, got sidetracked, and then I got involved with getting Governor Sanford elected, and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, almost 10 years go by. I, I started thinking about the project again and how that the people that I'd wanted to interview were in their 70s when we got started, and now... The greatest generation was um, many of them were standing their last muster or one of their last musters. So I th we needed to get on it. And I just happened to see in the paper where um, uh, Jeff Wilkinson was writing a series of articles on men and women who had served in World War II or who had helped in the defense effort through working in the industries and one thing or another. Um, so I called Jeff, and I said, Jeff, um, this is something we need to do. Will you do it? I said, I need somebody with a camera and who knows how to interview to undertake this project because we need to re-energize it. We need to start over. So that's how we got back into it. There was a 10-year hiatus, and we got back into it, and we got back into it just in the nick of time. So we're talking about, uh, about 2009 or 10. We started back up in 2010. Mm -hmm. We did a few interviews uh, in 99 and 2000. Uh, for instance, we did Stan Marshall. I, I, it's amazing what you don't know. Stan Marshall was married to a cousin of mine. His farm was right next to ours in Belton. Stan was the PT boat commander who picked up Jack Kennedy in the Solomon Islands. Uh, we got that story. Uh, but we didn't get it on high definition, and I don't know how we're going to, to deal with it today, but thank goodness we preserved it. So now we're here today, and um, we are glad that uh, y'all are here for a muster. And this is the, the third segment on the European theater That's right. of the war. Third segment. And you plan at least one more in the European theater. Right. And then go to the Pacific. Right. All right. Jeff, let's talk about your involvement both as a reporter for the state paper and also with ETV? Well, it was just a natural progression for me because I had done that series of 13 profiles of World War II veterans. And so uh, actually 
Chris Carawan, who's here with us, was one of those 13. So it was just a a matter of continuing, just finding more veterans and sitting down and doing the interviews and uh, got with Wade Sellers with Coal Powered Filmworks, uh, who edits and directs it. And uh, we just kept going. We've done 82 interviews in two years. You have lost some veterans since you began this series. Seven. Yep. We've lost seven veterans since we started. And it just, it just makes us more determined and more anxious to do as many as we can. Chris Carowin, you're from Columbia now. Let's talk about your growing up, where you were from, and when you entered the service in World War II. I grew up in the eastern shores of uh, North Carolina. My father was a sea captain, and we have lived around the water all my life, really. In fact, most of my mother's people and my father's people were seagoing people. Mm -hmm. So when I got out of high school, graduated, we were only we had eleven grades. Mm -hmm. The war had just started, and uh, I really wanted to get involved. And all of my buddies were getting in, and I didn't particularly want to go in the navy. So I just ruined the whole. Uh, family, family <laughs> tradition, but uh, I, I finally my, lost my father when I was 15, so uh, I had to talk my mother into signing my papers at 17 mm-hmm. to let me get in, and uh, eventually after a while, she she agreed to sign them, and uh, I, I did get in before my 18th birthday. And where did you do your basic training? I did. My, the first time I ever came to South Carolina was in Camp Croft. Okay, that's Over near, near Spartanburg. Near Spartanburg. And I took my basic there. And really, I, I was very fortunate in the, the time I could, uh, I could type. I took business courses in school. So my first sergeant would grab me by the nap of the neck to help him in the orderly room a lot, which helped me to get out of some of the long marches we had to make. But uh, I was interested in radio because my father was involved in radio uh, after he left the sea. And so uh, I did go to radio school there. And uh, I had three different MOSs in in uh, service. Military occupational specialties. Right. Okay. And uh, I, I loved radio and was involved in it the whole time. At the time, we had a uh, communications uh, sergeant in each company. And, of course, in basic, they moved us around. But uh, I took my basic there. We moved to uh, Tennessee for maneuvers mm-hmm. and came back. And uh, I wound up in uh, Camp Butner in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And there I was assigned as a uh, uh, radio operator in a rifle company. I was with the 89th Division at that time. And about the, oh, we'd been there maybe uh, six or eight months, I guess. Uh, the 106th Division had moved to Camp Atterbury, Indiana, mm-hmm. and started uh, filling back in. They had had a lot of people leave, pull them out and put them in other divisions. So uh, my first sergeant came to me one day, and he says, uh, Luckily, you work in the orderly room. You got your choice. You can go to uh, Atterbury, Indiana, or you can go to, I believe it was Camp Crowder, Missouri. And I said, well, what would you do? He said, I'd go to Atterbury because it's near Indianapolis, and you'll have a lot better time. So (laughs) they sent me on up to uh, Camp Atterbury and joined the 106th Division. Okay, and when did you ship out to Europe? We were uh, getting ready in the summer months, and we left there. Summer months of? Of uh, 43. Okay. But we uh, left in uh, September, started leaving in September, and different ships that took us over. Let's talk about shipboard conditions en route, which, which was fairly common on, on American troop ships. Uh, we, uh, we went over on a, a British ship that had been converted to a troop ship. Uh, the Aquitania, HMS Aquitania. That was a famous Cunard liner, yeah. And uh, we left uh, New York and went in and landed. In fact, uh, it took us over a week. We got down off the coast of uh, Florida, and we were going by ourselves, and we and we found out that those two German subs had spotted us or they had located us down in uh, Florida. So all of a sudden, the ship turned around and started up the coast again. And at that time, they knew how to zigzag to prevent the, mm-hmm. the subs from be able to key in on a, mm-hmm. with a torpedo. They went back off the northern route, and we landed in uh, a place called Gorick, Scotland, which was a beautiful place in between two mountains right uh, near Glasgow. Okay. Now, were you sleeping in shifts on the ship? Uh, no. We were, we were blessed. We had uh, bunks. But we were uh, very close together. I mean, I was going to say the bunks. The bunks were <laughs> yeah, like were four or five to the deck. Four or they? five to the depth, and the the big problem we had was that uh, 
if somebody got sick above you, you were in big time trouble <laughs> below you. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things I, I remember very much was uh, when we first got out of New York Harbor, of course the ship was so long it didn't go up and down frontwise, but it would roll. And they had a big uh, canister of oatmeal. <laughs> and they put it on one end of the deck and they would just let it slide down as the ship would roll and you had to grab it to get your oatmeal as it come by you on this ship. <laughs> so the the voyage was a little bit rough. The northern route is a real rough route. Mm-hmm. It was a stormy, rough ride going over. And and it, this was not part of a convoy. It was a single no, ship. No, it was a single single ship. We went by ourselves. Okay. All right. Jack Keith, let's do a little bit of background on you. I, I was born raised in uh, West Virginia. My father was a banker and a farmer and... Uh, I, I was a pre-med student, or pre, uh, interested in medicine all my life. My father uh, fought in World War I. Uh, he finished his uh, work there in Argonne Forest, mm. uh, and uh, it was one of our major battles that we'll probably talk about a little bit mm. later, is where we really, with Patton's Third Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, going back to this, I was not interested in military. Mm-hmm. I got a uh, letter because so uh, you are <clears throat> inducted in the Army with a report on January the 1st, 1944. And uh, so I had been in West Virginia University uh, one year, pre-med student, and took ROTC and uh, took an ASTP test. It's an aptitude test uh, of yeah, some sort. Yeah, an aptitude test. And it was primarily to get you involved in officer uh, candidate in Fort Benning. But... Uh, I passed the test. And how uh, old were you now? I'm 18 years old. You're 18 years old, pa- taking the test for officer candidate And uh, so I'm, I got uh, on this train, and it get it kept getting colder and colder and colder. And next thing I knew, I was in Hattiesburg, Pennsylvania, hmm. and uh, and I got out of the train, and I got I said, "Listen, there's some mistake." I said, "I'm officer material," <laughs> and. Uh, I'm supposed to be at Fort Benning. And he said, uh, Private Keith, come to attention. You're going to love this division. You're in the infantry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it was so cold. I mean, I had all these clothes on. And the first thing they did, they got us out on the, on the plane, all about 100 of us and exercised. And before he got through with me, I had everything down in my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> he said, now you understand how things are going to be much better. <laughs> but uh, this division was a 95th Infantry Division, mm-hmm. and uh, it was on its way overseas. They'd been tra- training for a year trying to get them straightened out. Mm-hmm. And so I was a replacement on the way over. And uh, they, they put me in an infl- in infiltration course <laughs> and ran under a few bullets. But uh, actually, uh, my time was very short because – they knew they were going to, the invasion was going to happen in Europe, and they wanted some replacements for this division. So I left Boston for embarkation in July. See, I was inducted in January. In July, I was on my way. It was July 1944. 1944. Okay. And uh, we disembarked in England mm-hmm. on the 17th of August, 1944. Mm-hmm. And uh, my brother, two brothers are both in the Air Force, so... My father had three sons. He was in the 8th Air Force. Mm-hmm. And uh, I communicated with him. I said to my brother, I said, why don't we meet in London? We're just there a short time. And he said, fine. So I got to the London, to the, oh, it was a YMCA, I think. And I walked in. And I said, uh, do you have a, a Quellen Keith here? And he said, he just checked out. I said, well, it must be some mistake. So I... I hadn't seen him for two years. He'd been over there so long, and I went up and felt his bed, and 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 uh, and, and just just uh, it was just a feeling that he'd been there. Well, when I walked up out the door, he walked in, and it was just a coincidence. He had just gone out and came back up, but I would have probably left if not, I had not seen him. But so you ran into your brother for the first time in two years. Yeah, two years, and it was a great. Uh, we spent the day there, and that's the only time I ever saw him. But uh, all right, so you're, you're you're now in London with the 95th Division. When do you 
uh, become part of Patton's Third Army? Uh, that's uh, 60 days. See, D-Day it was June the 6th, as we all know. Mm-hmm. We landed in August. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I didn't know, I didn't know at that time that we were uh, to be with General Patton's. But what happened is at this time, D-Day plus 60 days, he was on his way across Europe, and he ran out of gas. Mm-hmm. So they took our whole division, 195th Division, and made a red ball out of it. And by red ball, I mean they Truckers. took uh, that was transport. And we had to get to jerry cans off the beach. They were stacked over my head. That, a jerry can is, is, is a gas can. It's, it's what, a gas it's, can. It's, it's what? Yeah. How many gallons is that? Five gallons. Five gallon can. And they were stacked up, and... And so I said, I don't know anything about driving a truck. He said, you'll learn this is going to be fast. He said, get in a truck, and that's reverse, and that's forward, <laughs> and that's four-wheel drive. <laughs> and most of the stories I know about the Red Ball, more than, than I was involved, was the fact that you would sleep in the same bunk. You'd drive six hours and sleep, and he'd get out of your bunk, and you'd, you'd get in his. And uh, this was... Uh, to get uh, gasoline from the beach to uh, Patton's Third Army. I'll have to tell you about Patton a little bit later. But uh, Okay, we'll, we'll talk about probably the most colorful general in the United States Army in World War II, or maybe close to. You could right. have MacArthur or Patton. I think I actually would take Patton as, as the more colorful of the characters. I have to say one he thing was. about Patton. Surely. I went with my commanding officer up to the Maginot Line. I explained the Maginot Line was built by the French and faded face Germany. Okay. So I was in headquarters, and I said, I want to go in and hear what General Patton's going to say. And he said, you can't go in there. You're a private. And I, I said, well, it's a shame. But anyway, General Patton drove up in his, his Jeep. And it was I remember the guy in the back had an air-cooled machine gun. And he was sitting in the back, and General Patton, and the stars were right there on the on the plate. And he got off, and he saluted. That's the closest I've ever to me. And so after it was over, I said, what happened? And he said, well, I want to tell you, your, your commanding uh, lieutenant general was just dismissed by General Patton. I said, what? What do you mean he was dismissed? He said, well, when he talked about how he's going to take this fort— uh, he said, we're going to blast hell out of that thing. And he said, we're going to bring every shell we can in on that big fortress. And I let them rot inside. And tomorrow we'll be 50 miles on the other side of this fort. And uh, my commanding officer said, uh, anybody have a comment? Patton said, anybody have a comment? And my commanding officer said, oh, I think that's suicide, sir. He said, that, that that won't work, and I hate to tell you that. And General Patton said, well, we're going to see you back at the pub when this is over because I don't want anybody to, to, to lead soldiers if they don't think they're going to win this thing. So the next day, everything, all hell broke loose and it's bombed all the places. And we got on these trucks, and we took off and went down to this valley. And the next day, we were 50 miles on the other side of that fort, and he said, I'll leave a few guys back there to shoot at him, but uh, uh, that's the kind of man I want to, to fight under, because uh, even though he may be aggressive and may be manic-depressive, uh, when, when it comes to battle, he knew what to do. Well, I'm sure you've seen the, the uh, movie Patton with George oh, C. Yes, Scott. about four or five times. So you, you think that's a pretty fair portrayal? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, uh, I think they really did a good job. I think that uh, Patton uh, had the Germans scared to death of him because he uh, Rommel knew Patton and he didn't want to face Patton. All right. Speaking of fighting, Chris, let's talk about the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, you were in the 106th Division. Yes, sir. And. Um, when did you move? We got we got you across the Atlantic on the Aquitania, and you landed in Scotland. How long before you uh, were shipped over to the continent? We uh, we trained in uh, England for uh, about two months before we left, and we were uh, training night and day. We knew that, of course, that D Day had already happened, and 
we'd be going in later, and uh, we moved over in October. Okay. But we moved uh, into uh, northern France first. My, my regiment, uh, we had some, uh, not that we were older because most of us were uh, 18, 19 years old, but we had a few officers that were some older. And they started giving us some duty to check us out on night patrols and all before we moved, moved the whole division up into uh, uh, Belgium. But uh, they had told us that we were going to move up into the Snee Eiffel area of Belgium and Luxembourg. Uh, it was a very quiet area. The second division was there at that time. And your division had not yet been in combat? In no, that. not the whole division had not been in combat at that time. Okay. So we moved on up into that area and uh, relieved the second division. And as we were relieving the second division, they told us, said, uh, you guys have a nice vacation because this is a real quiet spot. They'd been there for several weeks because they had been over, I think, in the Hurricane Forest area, and they had been really decimated as far as losing a lot of people. So they moved us in. They even moved our kitchens up with us. Uh, uh, we were there for a week or so. We were just so happy because we were getting hot food. Uh, we First time we'd had a shower in some time. And now let's, let's just stop because even for people in the military now, sanitary comforts are fairly routine. How long were you in between showers? And moving up, we were just probably uh, three weeks or so. But after the bulge hit, uh, we didn't have a shower or could not shave or didn't have any hot food for over a month. The, the bulge started on December the 16th. Now, that's one thing that, uh, and, and I know that uh, John Rainey is a Vietnam veteran, as am I. We had field commanders who didn't always require people to shave every day. Y'all were expected to be shaving? Yeah, we were expected to be shaving. In fact, uh, uh, our executive officer, uh, I never saw him. He didn't have a tie on and shave. And he always kept telling us, he'd say, Soldier, uh, Miss Stone's little boy wants to go home, and he's going home looking neat, and I want you to look that way. So he kept the pressure on us to uh, to clean up and look, look decent. He says, you're American soldiers, and we want you looking like Americans to be proud of you. We stayed there for, uh, in that area for, I guess, maybe a week and a half, two weeks. And as I say, we were very pleased. Uh, I was At that time, I was using, operating a radio. I stayed with my company commander uh, most of the time. We, at that time, had crystals. We had crystal control frequencies, and we had to change frequencies about every day because the Germans would had sweepers that they would sweep our frequency, and... Uh, I'd try to get into a battalion, and they'd be playing uh, some American uh, songs for us over the, our radio. How, how heavy was this radio you were carrying on your back? It weighed somewhere between 12 and 14 pounds. Okay. And long antenna. Antenna was eight feet long, okay. sticking up in the air. Now, I was such a big husky guy, they gave me the radio to carry. <laughs> now, what was the statistics on radio operators? They were about like lieutenants, weren't they, in terms? Because, because you were you literally had... With that antenna, you were marked in combat. You were marked in combat. Anywhere you went, that antenna was sticking in the air. And it was one thing that uh, the Germans would It was about like us trying to get their snipers. They would usually hone in on the radio because they wanted it knocked out. But uh, everything was real quiet and real neat going. We were so happy to be there, and we felt like the 2nd Division told us you're going to have a good time up here and relax, and we were getting hot food. But then on the 16th, about 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, everything broke loose. We started, we, we had, up to that time, we had been sending out patrols, uh, trying to make contact with them. I'd been on the radio for, I know, a week. And I'd give a report back to my company commander, Cam Cassidy, would say, Carolyn, tell them what you hear. Don't be afraid to tell them what you hear. I said, well... I'm hearing noises over here, and it sounds like heavy vehicles moving in. It sounds like uh, trucks or tanks. Uh, they even, we even see flares at night, and that was out in front of our lines. When we moved into that position, we we had our 422nd, 423rd, and 424th regiments sort of in a line. And the table of operation for a, a division, uh, infantry division, is to cover seven or eight miles maximum. Mm-hmm. 
We were covering 27 miles. You guys in the 106 were pretty well spread out, too thin. Too thin, way too thin. Uh, we didn't even uh, have enough weapons that we, we thought it was just going to be a skirmish type of operation. We uh, didn't have any tank support. We had no mechanized uh, vehicles at all. It was mainly an infantry company. Uh, we had machine guns, of course. But very fortunately, my regiment was on a, uh, through, through the Ardennes Forest and through that area, is a very hilly, it almost is like sub-mountainous, I, I guess. A lot of creeks and rivers going through. Uh, we were in a position that we had a, a good broad view in front of us, so probably uh, uh, maybe a thousand mile, a thousand uh, meters out in front of us, and we could see anything that was happening down in front. So when we were shelled, we started shelling us uh, on the sixteenth, and they shelled us constantly for three solid hours with no let up, and we had everything from streaming memes to eighty eights to all kind of artillery, just pounding us, and if we hadn't have been dug in. We lost some people because of direct hits. Mm -hmm. But if we hadn't been dug in real good, none of us would have made it out at all. Had you all dug those fortifications? We dug most of them or improved on the ones that we moved into. Okay. We were there a few days, so we even started cutting down uh, logs where uh, artillery had knocked them down and dragged them over and putting them over our... Normally, you go into a foxhole, you'd have two men. Mm-hmm. so that uh, one could maybe get a little shut eye at night. Uh, I couldn't stay in a foxhole all the time because I had to radio and I had to move around a good a good bit. But uh, we had prepared ourselves and not thinking that anything would happen, but we kept getting, sending reports back that we knew something was going to take place, and we kept getting reports back, said, don't worry about it. Uh, they can't, the Germans are not capable of any major offensive, and the only thing you're going to have is skirmish fights and don't worry about it. So that's what we were believing until all this artillery started coming in. And after three hours, uh, we knew then there was going to be some type of attack. From our vantage point in my regiment, we could look out as, just about as far as we could see. And we could see, I saw one tank, I remember, first tank coming up, which I hadn't seen a German tank like that. It was a big, monstrous thing. And it was a German Tiger tank, and it had soldiers just all around it, and they were coming up towards our area. We uh, we were sort of uh, fortunate in a lot of ways that we could see in front of us enough that we could stop them. So uh, we cut down quite a few. Uh, one of our bazooka men was lucky enough to hit the tank on the side that it got a, I guess it got a, tra- a track or something, but it, it just stopped. I don't know what it ran out of gas or what happened. But anyway, we stopped the attack at that time. And that was probably uh, 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, I guess, about the middle of the morning. Mm-hmm. And then we started having these skirmishes coming in, and where we would see one German down, and we one would we'd get one down, seemed like two would come in his place. And uh, that was a constant thing that we went through uh, for three solid days. Uh, we, there was no let up at all, night or day. They kept coming. Okay, and on your particular area of the front, it was it was infantry. It was not the armor. No, no armor. We had no armor. Now the Germans, they had uh, tanks galore, and they and that was one reason we there was no way in the world we could keep holding them, and and we kept trying to stay in touch with our other two regiments, and we lost contact with them. We were so far apart that what had happened, the Germans had driven a wedge between our regiment and the 423rd. Mm-hmm. And then they'd also gone on the outside of the 422nd. And at that time, we didn't know what was happening, but, but from what we got, word we got back, what they were trying to encircle those two regiments. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. They wound up encircling both of those two regiments. We had heard word that the 7th Armored Division was, so pleased, was going to be our support as far as armor was concerned, uh, that they would be up any time. We just kept looking for them, and, and uh, my radio went on to blink. I had to go back to battalion to get new crystals, and uh, in fact, they gave me another radio to be, bring back with me. And at that time, we they had uh, they called them walking talkies, but I know you probably saw them, but they were, oh, they were about 18 inches long, and they were 
big square things, and they had a long antenna higher than the one I carried on my back. Heavy. And, and they were heavy as they could be, and they may cover 100 yards, and they may not cover 100 <laughs> yards. <laughs> I, I think I threw away about as many as I tried to use. But uh, I did get the radio going again, and through all the artillery that we had come in, it had uh, just decimated and destroyed our wire contact. Uh, we depended more on wire contact than we did radio because mm -hmm. it wasn't anything like it is uh, today, of course. But we found out, I think about the second night maybe, what was happening with our other two regiments. And we got word from uh, our battalion that we had to pull out. And we didn't know where we were going, whether we were going to just back up or what we were doing. Well, as happened, our division headquarters were in uh, St. Fifth, Belgium which is uh, north of Bastogne. So, I mean, it's a, it was a major highway, just like a, a major intersection, just like Bastogne mm -hmm. was as far as, and they wanted us to hold St. Uh We got back, and then we found out when we got back to, near to St. Fifth that uh, our two regiments couldn't get out, that they were surrounded completely. So we, they kept telling us, well, don't worry at all. The 7th Armored is on its way up, and we will uh, get those out, those boys relieved. But the end result, the 7th Armored never did show up, and uh, those boys had to to surrender. And that was 5,000 men that had to, two complete regiments. Uh, and, um, excuse me. That's okay. And... General Hodges caught a lot of flack. Flack. Those two regiments had to give up. It was either that or die. They ran completely out of ammunition. Uh, I lost some real good friends. I'm sorry. That, that, that's, that's okay, sir. It's okay. Uh, the Germans kept pushing us back. And in fact, that's why the, the bulge is mentioned because they pushed us back in, into a bulge area. Mm -hmm. And we kept trying to cut it off and cut it off. And uh, starting on uh, Christmas Eve night, my company, I was an F company, and uh, I don't know that we were the first, but we made one of the first counterattacks uh, to stop, that we stopped the bulge. And that was in a town called Manhay, Belgium. It was another small town, but it had... Uh, a very important, uh, I want to call it A1A, but I don't remember the highway numbers that went through there. But the Germans had taken the town, uh, drove tanks up in between to the buildings, and we got word, take Manhay. Mm -hmm. And our last words were, stay until you take Manhay or die taking it. That was the words we got. Uh, when we started to jump off, we... Uh, we were in a heavily wooded area, as our audience was, and we had to cross a big open field. And we passed three tanks. We had three tanks that had come up to support us in this attack. And for some reason, the Germans spotted those tanks as they were coming down through the it was sort of an open area. And an 88 took out all three of our tanks just on the spur of the moment. Uh, so we went on, tried, tried to get in town. The Germans knocked us out and, and backing up some to the wooded area. I lost two of my best friends there. Uh, and the lieutenant I was telling you about, uh, he was the first lieutenant, Harry Stone, was not very far from me. And I just heard a thud. I didn't hear anything but just a thud. And I looked and they'd got him. And also my good friend, Doyle Griffith, uh, I was as close to him probably as you. And for some reason, the machine gun off of the tank got him and missed me. And uh, I was able to call my medic and get our medic to him, and he was hit bad through the hip area. But we, they pushed us out. It was at night. We were fighting night, and they were shooting a lot of tracers. Uh, the next day, our company commander told us, says, we're going to take Manhay or we're going to die trying. And that day, we'd call back for some support. In some way, they heard us on our radio, and he sent up a P-40, and it had two bombs on it. And after he dropped those two bombs, then we were able to take uh, Manhattan, and we felt like it was a big plus for us. But mm -hmm. people don't understand, I don't think, how cold it was. We were just so cold, and we were not prepared for it. 
we didn't. The Germans, uh, after the snow came, uh, like Keith says, we had, gosh, snow three feet deep, and uh, we had uh, the Germans came out and they had white uh, coveralls on. Uh, we were sticking out there in OD uniforms <laughs> like a sore thumb, supposed to take a shot at us, and uh, it's an absolute miracle. We started getting some things in, but it was after the bulge really took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only thing that helped us and got us through the bulge, I think, was, of course, armor that came up. And then the weather cleared enough that our bombers and, right. and planes could come up and start dropping uh, some bombs. And we would make an individual attack. Most of the time, they would send a, a P-40. or, But that helped us mm-hmm. to, uh, to get through uh, those times that we had. Jeff Wilkinson. The film covers D-Day, D-plus, okay. through the hedgerows, uh, across France with Mr. Keith, Market Garden with Moffat Burris and others. who You know Moffat Burris. I know Moffat. And through the Battle of the Bulge. But uh, we also have a little segment called Rest and Relaxation. And if you would be so kind, Mr. Keith, if you could tell your winery story. Yeah, I want to hear about R&R <laughs> in Europe. Uh, I was with headquarters company, and uh, we had, this is up on the Rhine River now. Uh, that's, since I was a uh, uh, jack of all trades, he said, we have just captured this wine factory. And, and boy, it's the, one of the finest in the country. It was on the, right not far from the Remagen Bridge. And uh, he said, uh, we want you to, to protect it. So I said, I'm going to need some help. He said, well, we'll send two, two other guys with you. So men came over and said, we want some wine. I said, I got strict orders from headquarters that no one is supposed to touch this. And they said, well, we'll see about that. The next thing, I had two officers. These are the captains that came over. And they said, they hadn't had anything for a long time, you know. And I said, well, I just got an order in this, said this. When you take the Remagen Bridge, when you're on the other side, we'll case this up and you can have all you want. But until that happens, we are going to protect this. And we, <laughs> you can't imagine trying to keep uh, guys away from uh, one of the finest uh, wine uh, in the country. So. Uh, I tell this because uh, this one was so important, and this was a major uh, battle was coming on in, in near the Remagen Bridge. And, and of course, there's a South Carolinian who's gone, uh, and that was John Grimble, who was involved in the bridge at Remagen. First officer across the bridge. Yep. I would like to tell one story. Can I do that? Yes, sir. One of the major battles that uh, that with. Patton was Metz. Now, let me explain where Metz was right on the border between uh, Germany and France. Mm-hmm. And, and Metz was a big uh, city there. And uh, so <clears throat> it was uh, the last de- major defense of, I thought, uh, that the uh, German po- wanted to put up because if we got through that, well, we were at the Siegfried Line. Mm-hmm. And the Siegfried Line, you know, was built by the Germans. Mm-hmm. So what well, this was such a big battle for us. The 95th Division, this is one of our major battles we got into. We lost a lot of men. And so one night, I was attached to headquarters, and and they called me to come up and pick up the bodies. And I said, man, uh, I'm not in the medical corps or anything. And he said, well, we got to get these bodies out of here because it's, it's really tough on the morale of the soldiers to see him piled up there. So we got up and took stretchers out. Uh, machine guard uh, tracers were still going over top of us, you know, And uh, but it was a hard thing to see a uh, fellow you have a beer with and, and, you know, and then turn him over and, and see his face. And one was from Texas, a handsome, good-looking guy. And it, it just it just broke my heart to, to, to pick him up. But... But when when we got back, I was called to headquarters, and they said, uh, "I want you to come up here and and uh, help us get these bodies." They were stacked up now, uh, at least six or eight feet, and Germans and Americans. And uh, so I got up there one morning with with a 
my Jeep and looked over there, and the color on the, one of these Germans didn't look right to me. I mean, he didn't look dead. And uh, so I went over, and, and he's at the top of the pile, and he uh, checked his pulse, and I felt a beat. And he, uh, we pulled him out. He was shell-shocked. He was throwing in all this, all these bodies put together at night, pile up there, and uh, make this short as I can. But anyway, he uh, he was carried back, given intravenous uh, fluids there, and then packed on back. And they said that he made it. Now this story is only said that uh, when a man, regardless of German or American, uh, is in a situation like that, you're you're going to take care of him. And uh, I I think that uh, uh, you're out to the kill him. But on the other hand. Uh, this was a unique situation, and the last story but just happened the next day. I got a call from headquarters, and uh, this commanding officer came out with a SS trooper. He said, uh, Keith, follow me in your Jeep. And uh, I, at that time, I was in charge of gray registration, so I didn't know what he was up to, but he said, follow me. So we went out to a field. And he turned the corner, and he got out and asked the German to take 25 steps, and he pulled out his uh, automatic um, gun and put 12 shells right in his chest. This was this was a, a commanding officer that I really didn't know, and that was shocking to me because I'd never seen an execution before. But I found out later they had him all night there and, and interrogated him all night long. And he didn't budge. And we later found out if he had been, we'd been able to get the information from him, we'd have known about the Battle of the Bulge. This was before the thing was happening. He'd just gotten back from a big meeting, and I don't know who it was with, but he was, we were on the front lines, and there wasn't any question that uh, he knew, but he did not, he did not uh, divulge that. So he said, if you don't give us this information, we're going to shoot you. That's that's the quote I heard, and uh, mm. this is what World War II was about. It's it's a tough situation, and you have to understand if you haven't been there, you wouldn't be sympathetic with that officer. But uh, but anyway, this was a, a SS trooper. I mean, he had all the uniform and everything that identified him, and uh, so that uh, that experience. Uh, for an 18-year-old boy that's a pre-med student and see that, it, 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 and this, this, this is the war. Mm-hmm. And so the last thing is talking about Bastogne. I am now taking it easy. Uh, we got in Mets in this, this city, and we got in a feather take. Man, it was Christmas. It was Christmas Eve. And I thought, whoa, well, this is wonderful. <laughs> We had some water. We could take a shower, or not a shower, but bath out of a uh, bowl, not 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 a shower. But uh, they, it was. I could hear the tanks moving, and they'd come up this corner where, and my whole uh, house would shake, and uh, because the tanks were turning and heading north. I said, "What's going on?" They said, "Everybody out." Those SOBs have. Uh, Broken through. The German tanks are coming into Bastogne, and we're ordered. General Patton's going up. And we, I said, well, it's snowing. It's six foot deep out there. He said, did you hear that we're leaving? So <laughs> right now, and uh, that night, the next, uh, it took us almost two days. The weather was so terrible, so cold and freezing and the uh, roads were mud, and we had trucks all over the place. You've seen pictures of moves of this, but it was worse than that. It was uh, these trucks, uh, even though four-wheel drive, mud cleared up the axles, and, and uh, we had everybody say, "Get them out of the road so we can keep on going." But when we got to Bastogne, my job was great registration. I didn't volunteer for this. I was told what to do. I picked up. 82nd Airport parachuters. They're, I knew I knew where they were work because they had boots on mm-hmm. and laced up. Boy, they're beautiful leather boots. Mm-hmm. We didn't we didn't have anything like sure that. Mm-hmm. Mine was about above my ankles, 
and uh, I'd, I would, uh, they were frozen in the field, and you dig them out, and, and as I said, we, we put, I always put the Germans on the bottom and the Americans on the top. But I just, that just would, but it didn't always work that way. But this was at Bastogne. All right, gentlemen, I don't know where the time has gone, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up signal. Let's just kind of go around the room and have some last comments from everybody. And Chris Carlman, let's start with you. One, I'll tell one quick story on the wine story because uh, after we took Man Hay, we went through uh, a, a rail yard, and it wasn't a big rail yard. It was a small one. But one of my buddies came up, and he said, you know, there's a there's a uh, car over here on the track with with big wooden cask on it. They carried uh, wine and the big wooden cask oh, yeah. on the railroads. There was two two wooden casks. I said, man, there couldn't be any wine in that thing. He said, I guarantee there's wine in it. And he said, let's go find out. Well, he had a forty five. He went over and he shot about four or five times in the end of that, and wine started spouting out about like this. <laughs> so our whole group pulled off our steel helmets and started filling them up with wine. And about that time, my company commander, we had lost our original company commander, and my company commander at that time was the first lieutenant who went to to uh, West Point, and he was really a, he was about like Pat, and he wanted to fight all the time. But he come over and says, what in the hell are you guys doing? He said, we found wine in this thing, sir, and it's, it's absolutely good wine. He said, well, let's all have a party. So he pulled his helmet off, and we all just stopped right there and had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Jack Keith. I want to say that uh, I just uh, subtract the numbers here a minute ago. It was 67 years ago, 1944, that, uh, that I personally entered the service. And and this program that you're putting on, John Rainey and and, and uh, Walter, that uh, I appreciate so much because my family has been trying to get me for years to to write down uh, what happened there, and actually I uh, started writing, and I things started coming back to me that I I that I had uh, forgotten about. But what I want to say is I think this program uh, is important because I have grandchildren that need to hear this story. Uh, my, I have one son is is very interested. In, we went back to Normandy again where we landed in, in 44. But uh, unless we do programs like this and let them see this, uh, I think that you can't, you can't imagine – uh, a generation is going to be gone, and then the third generation won't know anything about it. And I don't think they teach anything like this in school as much as I Well, the, not only did they, is, is, it, is it not taught, but uh, one of the discouraging things now, since we have been at war for more than a decade, is the disconnect between the civilian population and those in the military. And in your generation... Uh, the sacrifice was was shared by by all families, everybody. by everybody. Uh, that's not the case now, no, and that's, that's why people need to understand the story. It's it's not some video game. It's real. I have the same uh, feeling. I, I think it's a wonderful thing. And my wife and I were raising. We lost both of our daughters with cancer, and we we're raising a little granddaughter. And she's she volunteers me every time there's something in school going on to go in and tell oh, the kids. Bless her. And and. One of the things that amazes me so is that I go in and I'm talking to them. And, of course, I'm talking to most of them are high school kids. And the main thing the boys say, well, what kind of gun did you have? They don't really have. And I try and impress on them that when, when World War II, it was a, a war of everybody. Mm-hmm. Even the civilian people had to do without. We had women in the factories making planes and different things. It's a whole different uh, ball game. But I think, uh, like Keith says, I think it's... Uh, something that is a disconnect completely of how the war was fought then. And it was a total war. Mm-hmm. It was all over the world. It was just going on uh, everywhere. One thing is different about uh, World War II is, is no matter whether you're a son of a banker or a lawyer or uh, everybody was involved in this thing. And uh, I can't say enough about our soldiers now that we don't appreciate 
But I'll tell you, anybody that's in the military, we, we ought to salute them and thank them for what they're doing and also educate our children and grandchildren. There can't be enough of it, I don't think. Jeff and John? Well, what they just said is absolutely correct. This is an ongoing project. Uh, we want to keep interviewing veterans. We need to find more in South Carolina and tell their stories just like these guys have told their stories. We particularly are looking for, in this case, for the next episode, Holocaust survivors, Holocaust liberators, folks in the Pacific, waves, whacks. They can, uh, they can reach me at the state newspaper. They could reach Wade uh, Sellers, the director at Coal, at C-O-A-L, Powered Filmworks in Columbia, or they can just call the good people at ETV and they'll get them to us. We'll have a link on the Walter Edgar Journal's website where people can get in touch. John Rainey? A lot has changed, but not much has changed since the 4th century B.C. when Herodotus wrote his histories because he said he wrote them in the hope of preserving from decay the remembrance of what men have done. And that's exactly what we are doing today. All right. John Rainey, Jeff Wilkinson, who are the executive producer and producer of South Carolinians in World War II and two distinguished veterans, Jack Keith of Spartanburg and Chris Carowin of Columbia. I want to thank you, gentlemen, so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The South Carolina ETV series, South Carolinians in World War II, is more than just another documentary. What ETV is doing in cooperation with the state newspaper is creating an archive of the stories, memories, and experiences of the men and women in our state who are part of what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. Listening to Chris Carowin of Columbia and Jack Keith of Spartanburg, I heard stories that it was quite clear that they may have told for the first time. Like many veterans, they don't always tell their families or put down their memories. But thanks to ETV, those memories and those stories will now be preserved for posterity. And this third in the series of South Carolinians in World War II, subtitled The Path to Victory, will air on November the 10th on SCETV at 8 p.m. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal.